Thank you very much and good afternoon everybody. Um, first of all I'd like to just thank the Academy and especially Siobhan, Siobhan and her colleague Bernadette Cunningham for the invitation to speak today as part of this um, lunchtime lecture series. In speaking to you today about the Battle of Clontarf story in 18th and 19th century manuscripts, the obvious starting point is a tale known as Ka Clonatharov, in English, the Battle of Clontarf, which seems to me to have been one of the most popular Irish prose texts to have come down to us in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts. I would describe its popularity in part to two reasons. First, because at the heart of the tale's message is the fact that the Battle of Clontarf amounted to Brian Borova's victory over centuries of Viking heathen oppression. Second, because it presents the historical Battle of Clontarf not as a record of events, but as a story in which, as one scholar put it, heroes shine and villains play their sinister parts and dramatic incidents are invented are exaggerated for the benefit of the reading public. These two reasons are not exceptional to Kaklun Atharov, however, as the same could be said, and indeed has been said, about the earliest literary account we have in Irish concerning the Battle of Clontarf, that in the text known as Cogogail Regalif, the War of the Gaels with the Foreigners. And I have, at this point, I should just allude to the, man, uh, to the handout. I list the texts that I will be dealing with in particular under number one on your handout. This Cogogail Regalif text, this Middle Irish work, outlines the Scandinavian invasions of Ireland in the late 9th and 10th centuries, and it seems to have been written for Brian Borova's great-grandson, Mirtach O'Brien, who reigned as High King of Ireland and died in 1119 AD. Ultimately, we can trace many of the plot details in the modern Irish story, Cáclán back to those forming part of the account of the battle in the early 12th century Cogha text. However, I think we can attribute the popularity of the modern Irish story in 18th and 19th century manuscripts to at least two further factors. First, when we consider that most of this tale's manuscript sources are of monster provenance, we can hardly be surprised that a Clontarf story which presents Brian Borova and the O'Briens of Munster as heroes par excellence should indeed find favour with scribes from that province in particular. Added to that is a second factor, the influence on the transmission of the tale by a work known as Foros Fassa er Eden, which I have listed as well under number one on your handout, a history of Ireland compiled in the 1630s by Shaharun Keatin or Geoffrey Keating. Keating's prose and style of presenting events in Ireland's past in an intelligible idiom found great favour with Irish scribes. When we consider, for example, that about 60 copies of this work form part of the manuscript collection of the Royal Irish Academy alone, then we can safely say that within the parameters of scribal texts, Keating's history was indeed popular among 18th and 19th century scribes. And it was his particular interpretation of events at Clontarf which was to resonate with Irish scribes when they turned their hands at compiling their own transcripts of Kaakonatharov. But more of that anon. Let me turn first to what we can glean from the scribal evidence regarding the transmission of the Battle of Clontarf story as we have it in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts. We don't know exactly when the tale Kaakonatharov was first composed and by whom, but it certainly was in existence as an independent text in the first half of the 17th century when it appeared as part of the contents of an anthology of prose texts. While the, the original anthology itself has not survived, we know from six 18th century copies of it that its title was Laur Garna Palisha, and I, I would uh, direct you to number two on the handout, Laur Garna Palisha, the short book of palace. I have suggested that on Falish, incorporated into, into the title Laur Garna Palisha, refers to the townland of Palace, County Kerry. 
Palace Castle, of course, was the chief residence of Macarthur Moor and was located near Beaufort Bridge, Killarney. This is all the more likely when we consider further evidence in the two earliest extant transcripts of Laurgar na Palicia by the County Meath scribe Sean McSully or John Sully. And that brings me to the exhibition here. Um, McSully's work is actually on show. I think it's in the second cabinet here from the top, but I'm happy to answer your questions after on that. That's 23K37. I think it's in that particular cabinet. If you look at McSully's work at page 172, and that is exactly the page that is open in the cabinet, you will find a note telling us there that Laurgarn the Palicia, and again, I have this under number two on your handout, Laurgarn the Palicia was completed in 1648 by one Eugenius Carty, Ol who resided at what is called Baile on Elaine, probably the same as Elon Kiori, or Castle Island, County Kerry. This in turn suggests to me that Owen Macarthur belonged to the Cushmang branch of the McCarthys or Clown Horror. Now, whether he was the original compiler of the anthology or not, Max Sully's note leaves us in no doubt but that Cochlonatharov existed as an independent tale by the 1640s when it formed part of the anthology of prose tales called Laurgarna Palicia. So that's basically a summary of what I've said thus far. Some of you may quite rightly ask, what contemporary relevance would Laurgarna Palicia have for a member of the Cushmang branch of the McCarthys in the 1640s? Indeed, more of you might ask why a McCarthy would be interested at all in a tale such as Cochlonatharov, which extols the O'Briens, who were once bitter rivals of the McCarthys in Munster. When taken together, of course, there is the overriding matter that in their, that in their entirety, the prose tales, including Cochlonatharov, which comprised the anthology known as Laurgarna Palicia, celebrate a glorious era in Munster's past. 17th century Ireland, of course, was a time of great political upheaval. So that the contents of Laurgarna Palicia gathered together prose tales, including our tale, Kaklunatharov, which focused on the triumphs of a glorious past from which the intended 17th century reader may have inferred that such glory could indeed be retrieved through unity of purpose rather than by division of loyalties. Now to the Battle of Clontarf story, Kaklunatharov itself. I have enumerated 90 transcripts in all from 18th and 19th century manuscripts in my recent edition of the text for the Irish Text Society. In view of such an extraordinary amount of copies, it can safely be regarded as one of the most popular prose tales amongst 18th and 19th century Irish scribes. While the title Cochlonatharov recalls the historical battle which occurred at Clontarf, near the city of Dublin on Good Friday, AD 1014, a battle incidentally which is perceived to be the premier Irish Norse battle. And while the tale's two main protagonists are historical figures who flourished in 10th and uh, 11th century Ireland, namely Brian Borva and his son Morocha, that's where history ends and story takes over. I actually had a slide here to, to give you a visual idea, um, but uh, I think it may come in a moment. Um, in any event, I'm not using PowerPoint too much, but I thought this particular, it's a, um, thanks, Siobhan. <laughs> Apologies for this. Technology. I think there's a temporary uh, breakdown in, in connection here. It was actually a sketch dedicated to William Smith O'Brien, himself obviously a descendant from Liam Bordova, uh, which is a 
a colourful depiction, so to speak, of the battle. And I think this accords nicely with what we're dealing with here, uh, the Cochlonathar of narrative. In any event, um, as I said, story takes over. So we are, in, in fact, dealing here with a literary reenactment of the historical battle at Clontarf, whereby the main characters are cast as foils to heathen Viking invaders who are eventually overthrown and expelled from Ireland. The text belongs to a genre referred to by Celtic scholars as romantic tales, that is, prose narratives featuring virtu virtually interchangeable heroes, in this case, Brian and his son, Morocha, and their exploits, adventures, and encounters with the marvelous and the other world. Notwithstanding the large number of manuscript sources of, for the tale, I mentioned 90, certain li literary embellishments and innovations are evident in this substantial amount of material which allowed me to divide the various transcripts into manageable textual groups, and that is on number three in your handout. By core narrative here, I mean that part of the narrative common to all transcripts of the tale, but one which has been preserved as a text, text in its own right in 24 manuscripts, written between 1715, 16, and 1853. Material added to the opening passage of the core narrative yielded a variant text, what I call version one here, which has been transmitted in 13 manuscripts written between 1701 and 1859. Version two refers to a separate text of which there are four variants, which I call 2A, 2B, 2C and 2D. And this version is preserved in 53 manuscripts written between 1702 and 1890. Unlike version one, version two differs considerably from the core narrative in that its compilers derived passages, sometimes almost verbatim, from Geoffrey Keating's History of Ireland, Fodosfasa et Eden, which I mentioned earlier. We find these passages from Keating's history spliced onto the core narrative of our text and the result of this scribal cutting and pasting, if you will, is a separate version, the version two narrative. Since the publication of my book, however, yet another manuscript witness has emerged. Uh, that is on show as well here. Um, again, certainly alerting people like myself to the fact that we can never quite quantify what we're dealing with. Um, and while initially I, it was one of shock, um, I am very grateful that it did emerge and I hope to maybe uh, write a note on that um, in time. Now, before exploring this amount, if you like, of source material or this evidence uh, in more detail, I'd just like to bring you through the main incidents making up the content of the core narrative. Again, that, that text that is common to all the manuscript witnesses. And I have them there for you under number four on your handout. So the paragraphs or the sections there are my own sections in my edition. So sections one to three, an army led by Brian Borva and his son Moroha gathers at Clontarf to do battle against Moelmorga, king of Leinster, and his Viking allies. Section four, unwilling to spill blood on Good Friday, Brian Borva remains apart from the battle in prayer in his tent. Section 5, Melshachlin Moor, King of Meath, and ally of Brian Borva, abandons the battlefield. Section 6, Moracha encounters a friend, Dovling, on the battlefield, and follows him to the other world, where a supernatural woman named Evil of Craig Lee, or Craig Lea in the text, foretells their deaths and that of Brian Borva. Section 7, Moracha and Dovling return to the fray but Moracha must quench his, thirst, his insatiable thirst by drinking regularly from the well of Clontarf. Section eight, those guarding the well on Moracha's behalf are killed by a Viking band, and once their blood mingles with the water of the well, Moracha is unable to drink it. Section nine, Moracha dies at the hands of a Viking warrior. Sections 10 to 11, Brian Borva is killed by a fleeing Viking, but his death marks the end of Viking oppression in Ireland, so the text. Sections 12 to 13, Thrilloch, or Thrilloch, son of Murcha, dies at the weir at Clontarf, and the opposing armies suffer heavy losses. 
Section 14, the bodies of Brian and Murcha are transported for burial to Ireland's primatial church in Armagh. Section 15, while Shachlin Moore describes to his kinsman the horrors of the battle which he witnessed. Section 16, as instructed by his father, Donacha son of Brian pays 12 score cows to the primate of Armagh on Easter Sunday. Sections 17 to 18, while Donacha O'Brien returns homewards to Thomond with his wounded army, tensions are already beginning to erupt within Munster. So let's now look in more detail at the main characters of this story as they're presented to us. The characterization of Brian Borve, as summarized at section four, for example, is one of pious bystander, a characterization which, which finds its primary parallel in the account of the Battle of Clontarf in the Middle Irish Cogogoelreigalov text, where we learn that Brian, and I quote in translation, opened his psalter and began to clasp his hands and to pray after the battle had commenced, unquote. According to the modern Irish Cochlanatharov narrative, however, Brian's absence from the battle scene is motivated not by his advanced years, but by his unwillingness to shed blood during the Lenten season. The text tells us that he retires from the fray to his tent, complete with, and I quote my translation, his psalter before him and his crucifix in his hand while chanting his psalms. A psalter in the Ionische, agus a chros il in a live, agus a gvoil, a salam. Some manuscript copies, moreover, mention Brian praying with his rosary beads in his hand, a fadidin in a live. Now you will see from, from, that, from that part of the handout that Brian's next appearance is further down in the text at sections 10 to 11. Here we find him refusing the request by his servant that he flee from the battle on horseback at the height of the ferocious battle. His bravery, so the text, costs him his life when he falls prey to the retreating Viking who, who cleaves Brian's head with an axe, but not before Brian himself manages to overcome the enemy. Sections five to nine present the main protagonist of, on the battlefield, undoubtedly Brian Borova's son, Murcha, not only because of his heroic contribution on the field of battle, but because a series of motifs is attached to him which highlights the supernatural and valorous aspects of his character. In sections five to six, for instance, we find him encountering a supernatural friend, Dovling, who has abandoned the magical otherworld to bolster the cause of Borova's troops on the battlefield. This mysterious intervention derives ultimately from an interpolated passage in the Middle Irish account in Cogagoel Regalev, which tells us how one Dunling Uahartagain appears to Murcha and he describes the delights of his paradisiac homeland. Unlike the passage in Cogagoel Regalev, however, where Murcha recognizes his supernatural vi visitor on the battlefield, Dovling in the narrative of Kakunatharov is not immediately visible to the Dalgash hero. This is because he is wearing um, a protective magic cloak given to him as a gift by the supernatural evil to ensure his safe passage from the other world by keep, keeping him invisible from the mortal world. On discarding this protective cloak, Dovling becomes visible to Murcha who in turn follows his friend into the other world where both heroes learn of their terrible fate from evil in an ensuing metrical dialogue between the trio. Prophecy then is undoubtedly an important part of the narrative of Kogoyal Regalov, which involves this otherworldly woman foretelling the, the death of Brian Borova when she appears to him on the eve of the battle. Her role in that text, Kogoyal Regalov, is less pronounced, however, whereas evil plays a significant part in Kaklunatharov. As Dovling's very powerful lover, Lanon Lan Chochtoch, we are told that evil initially managed to entice Dovling away from the mortal world to her magic dwelling. Essentially, then, she recalls the well informed supernatural helper of Irish romantic tales when, in this instance, she tries to avert the catastrophe awaiting Murcha 
and Dovling in Clontarf by convincing them to remain with her in the other world and not to return to the fray. She fails in this, of course, but it is Murrah's encounter with evil that forms part of an overall development concerning him in later tradition, where we find him in other romantic tales entering the other world through a dark magical mist, for example, um, and confronting supernatural beings there, or where, in another instance, he is sought out at the court of his father by a mysterious ambassador from the other world in the form of a druid, Dhri. Journeying to the other world by means of a lake, Murcha's encounters with the supernatural are predominantly adversarial. Essentially, then, this particular son of Brian Borova, who was killed in the historical battle of 1014, has, by the later medieval period, become Murcha, the universal, ahistorical hero who confronts the marvels of the other world. Sections 7 to 9 of Kaklun Atharav present us with another important motif, that of the hero's insatiable thirst, which he must slake at regular intervals by drinking water. I've noticed before, when I come to this part in a lecture, and I've given a lecture something like this before, I inevitably feel obliged to have a drink of water, so you will excuse me. <laughs> the hero in this instance is once again Murcha, son of Brian Borova, whose downfall is unavoidable once his Viking enemies realize the importance of the well and that of the war warriors guarding it. A summary execution of the appointed guards results in their blood mingling with the water of the well, rendering it undrinkable when Murcha next arrives to quench his thirst. This motif of the well in the core narrative of Cáclunatharov finds parallels elsewhere in Irish and Scottish Gaelic traditions, and it is an important plot detail which adds to the central role accorded Brian Borova's heroic son in our tale. Sections 12 to 13 focus on yet another character, Tyrilloch, son of Murcha, who, so the narrative, is, quote from my translation, the most accomplished 15-year-old man in his own time, far cuignianneog the bar love in the Aimshid fane. This young man also emerges as a key character who relent relentlessly pursues his Viking foes as far as the Irish Sea. His valour costs him his life, however, for he was found on the morrow with a Viking beneath him and a Viking in each hand and a stake from the weir of Clontarf through him, having been drowned by the torrent of the full tide. Fríor é ar na bhórach agus lochlanach fúi agus lochlanach isgach láivra agus cuile do chorra clonatharav fríid ar na bhóha don vúin there is one final character who is also of importance to our core narrative, namely Melshachlin Moore, or Melshachlin, son of Donal of Meath. We know from our historical annals that on coming to power in 978 AD as ruler of the Midland territory of Mithe, he was Brian Borova's primary opponent in the northern half of Ireland, but that he lent his support to the Munster King at Clontarf. His characterization, as presented in section 5 of Kaklun Atharav, is very much that of friend turned foe, however, one who acts as a foil to the heroic Brian Borova in abandoning the battlefield. When Melshachlan reappears in section 15, as part of the post-battle section of the narrative, we find him delivering in direct, uh, in direct speech an eyewitness report of events on the battlefield at the request of his kinsman. He begins this speech by claiming never to have heard of such ferocity on any battlefield unless God's angel should come from heaven to tell it, mon the dukkach angel day the niv da inishin. Despite placing themselves at a distance of a ploughed field, Gorth Chaffa, from the scene of the conflict, Malshachlin and his men were soon so entirely covered by drops of crimson blood, the vroenev folle für jarge, coming from the battlefield, that they could not even offer assistance, and their arms, too, were hampered by heads freshly hacked off those in the fray. 
He concludes his speech by stating that those in the heat of the conflict were no worse off than he and his army, who, as helpless spectators, were forced to look on. Now, while the early 12th century Cogogoel Regalev narrative was the inspiration for this dramatic monologue, in that work, the speech underlines the savage nature of the conflict itself, rather than drawing attention to Mel Shachlan's inactivity. In Kakonatharov, however, Mel Shachlan morphs into a baleful betrayer who withdrew his support for Bienborova at Klantarf so that his speech amounts to the specious delivery of a cunning traitor. And again, I should mention that most of the manuscripts were compiled by monster scribes, and of course they would uh, certainly receive this particular view or this portrayal of Miles Shachlin um, very favourably and indeed embellish it, as we shall see. So having given you a, a brief overview of the motifs which form the fabric of the core narrative of Kaklun Atharov, as well as outlining the important plot details concerning its, its main protagonists, it will, I hope, be clear that a central aspect of Irish language tradition is the story which became attached to Clontarf, the historical event. However, any discussion of the Battle of Clontarf story, as it has come down to us in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts, must acknowledge the profound effect of Geoffrey Keating's History of Ireland, or Fordus Fassa et Aden. Indeed, the fact that we find passages taken almost verbatim from this History of Ireland points to that work's canonical influence on subsequent narrative tradition. Specifically, it was Keating's particular understanding of pre- and post-battle events which caught the fertile imagination of the successive compilers of Kaklunatharov and resulted in the version 2 narrative which I mentioned earlier. I should also add here that even in matters of style, the opening section of the version 2 narrative of Kaklunatharov contrasts with the analytic style of the opening both in the core narrative and in version 1 of the tale. Version 2, then, begins not just by drawing particular attention to the exalted status of Brian Borova in his campaign to consolidate his political power in Munster and beyond, but, more importantly, it includes a colourful plot detail explaining how the Battle of Clontarf came about in the first place. Taking this plot detail from Keating's Forus Fassa et Aden, Scribes grafted it onto the core narrative of the romantic prose tale, thereby producing a different version of events, that is, the version 2 narrative of Kaklunatharov. This particular plot detail itself sets the scene in Brianborova's residence at Kaunkora, or Kinkora, County Clare, and it is Goromla, wife of Brianborova, who emerges as an ambitious woman who castigates her brother, Moel Morga, son of Morocha, King of Leinster, for bowing down in vassalage to, to Brian Borova and the O'Briens of Munster. Goromla persists in rebuking her brother, Moel Morga, for not being like his father and grandfather, and warns that Brian's son would indeed demand vassalage of Moel Morga's offspring. We find a somewhat som uh, sober de depiction of this already in the Middle Irish Cogogoel Regalev text. And while Keating reproduces this characterization of Goromla as an ambitious woman who promotes her Leinster connections, he embellishes it as follows. And this is number five on your handout. I'll read the translation by the editor, uh, Patrick Deneen. The King of Leinster took off his tunic and gave it to his sister Goromla, daughter of Morocha, that is, Brian's wife, to fix a clasp in it. The queen took the tunic and cast it into the fire that was in front of her and proceeded to reproach her brother for being in slavery or subjection to anyone on earth, a thing, said she, whether which neither thy father nor, nor thy grandfather brooked. And she added that Brian's son would make the same demand of his son. Now, Melmorga kept in mind the queen's remark, remarks. So the cumulative effect of Goromla's remarks, as well as a subsequent quarrel which erupted between Melmorga and Morocha, son of Bienborova, during the game of chess, moves the Leinster king, Melmorga, to seek allies in war against Thomond. And so the role of Keating's Goromla is that of instigator 
of open warfare at Clontarf. And I looked at some history books which my grandfather studied in school, and you have that actually presented as if this is the reason for the, for the historical battle itself. But um, that's another, another day's discussion. Version two of our Clontarf story reproduces Keating's interpretation of what caused the outbreak of the Battle of Clontarf, namely the words spoken by an ambitious woman and inciter of violence who sought the downfall of her own husband. But version two goes further in embellishing Keating's own embellished presentation. I offer here just one example, and this is number six on your handout, uh, one example of what I mean that contained in a footnote to a translation of Kakunatharov in um, a manuscript in the Academy's possession, and it's actually also on display, uh, manuscript 23E4, which itself was intended for publication by the Celtic Society. So this is what the note tells us. The flimsy pretext used by the Queen of Ireland to pick a quarrel with her brother was only assumed. And her anger was only the outpouring of the mind of an ambitious woman who, seeing that her own children by Brian had no chance of the crown of Ireland while his sons by a former marriage stood in the way, resolved to stir up, in, uh, stir up a revolution in the hope that her son, the King of Dublin, or her brother might chance to succeed instead of her stepchildren in case her own other children would be set aside. So it's heavy stuff, and that's just one example um, um, of what I'm talking about. The other aspect of Keating's influence on the Battle of Clontarf's story in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts was his contrastive representation of Brian Borova and Moelschachlin of Meath. In the account of kingship, for example, and this is number seven on your handout, Brian Borova, so Keating in his Forosfasa, succeeded to power, quote, by the strength and bravery of his feats of valour and championship, driving the foreigners and the Danner out of the country and not by treachery. The tenure of Moelschachlin Moore, however, was one given, quote, to luxury and comfort and ease, a line of action that was useless for the defence of Ireland at that juncture. As such, then, Keating cleverly succeeds in contrasting Brian Borva, the resolute protector of territory and honourable sovereign who revered the church as well as its vocation to learning, with his predecessor, Myles Shachlin, who forfeited his claim to the kingship of Ireland. Now, while it is true that the theme of Myles Shachlin as friend turned foe is central, as I said already, to the core narrative of Cachlan Atharov, both Keating and the scribes of the version 2 narrative after him go even further in presenting Malshachlin as the consummate traitor, a depiction which encouraged certain monster scribes to add their own condemnation to that already found in Keating's history. So let's look first at Keating's resume of Malshachlin's character in the, in the following damning clarification to his reader, and this is number eight on your handout, I'll read the translation. Observe, O reader, that though it was as part of the host of Brian that Malshachlin and the men of Meath came to the field of battle, still through a plot between himself and the Lochlanig, he did not come into the battle array amongst Brian's host, but what he did was to remain with his host beside the battle as the Lochlanig had directed him. Not only do we find this negative characterization of the Meath king in the version 2 narrative, but we also find that Keating's sent sentiments aroused further expressions of provincial loyalty among certain monster scribes. In some sources, for example, the reader is addressed with the rhetorical question, O oh, reader, is that plot which Lachine, that is the northern half of Ireland, had against monster men not a pity? I was particularly struck, and this is also on exhibition in the first, in the second cabinet. Um, I was particularly struck when I, struck when I first read the reaction by the scribe Diarmuid O'Melchine from near Six Mile Bridge in County Clare. He concluded his text, Kaplanatharov, with the following address to his reader. I'll actually, I have it here as well for you. Um, that is on show. Uh, um, I'll read my translation. So he talks to you, or to me, the reader, and he says, and know, 
also that it was because of treachery and with a view to treachery against Brian Borovus on the Canada becoming High King of Ireland that Melshachlan Moore and the men of Meath drew back from the Battle of Clontarf across a lee-burned field and ditch. And it is they who gave a report, and it was their desire to jump in the evening on all the survivors of the battalions of Brian, Murrucha, Thrilloch, Dovling and Dolgash and kill all those alive there. That is the Battle of Clontarf. Another example, and this is number 10 on your handout, is that completed around about 1813 by the Waterford scribe William Brunhach, who concluded that Melshachlan's treachery amounted to a conspiracy against the men of Munster. So I'll read my translation. So that that is the Battle of Clontarf and the treachery of the kings of Leinster and Meath, who thought to bring the Gaels under submission and bondage to, to the Vikings. Unfortunately, however, a short while after that, Machmurcha of Leinster and the men of Leinster brought us under the slavery of foreigners. So he's gone on, on to the Normans now. But the day will come when they will suffer a fate similar to the banishing of the Vikings by the monster men and let it not be far from them. So this and much more evidence besides in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts tells us that the scribes of that time, particularly those in Munster, were undoubtedly influenced by Keating's negative depiction of the Meath king in Fodosfasa ed Aden. But crucially, I think, their presentation of Maelshachlan as one attempting to excuse his lack of involvement in the Battle of Clontarf also shows a certain literary sensibility to characterization on their part. And this sensibility in turn, I think, further enriches the overall plot detail of the tale itself. I also think it important to note that the evidence of such engagement with the material which the scribes set about transcribing suggests to me that the scribal text carried with it an intimacy for them which allowed them to project their individuality onto their scribal texts. And so, when we consider the overall transmission of the tale Kakul Natharov, with its extraordinary number of transcripts, we are reminded that scribes of the tale worked, of course, as copyists on the one hand, but as inventive authors on the other, whose creative sense was provoked by their activity in dealing with a text such as this one. In addition, it may be argued, as I have done in my edition for the Irish Text Society, that the variety of transmission of a tale such as this one calls into question the fixity or permanence of the scribal text in 18th and 19th century Ireland. In other words, instead of dealing with an authoritative, fixed or uniform text, we have to do here with a variety of texts, each with a potential for uniqueness. I began my talk today by stating that in any discussion of the Battle of Clontarf story in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts, the obvious starting point is the tale itself, Kakunatharov. This is but one example, however, albeit an important one, but there are other literary reenactments of Clontarf, the historical event, which have also been transmitted in Irish manuscripts from this period. They too may be viewed as literary re recreations which form part of the story which evolved around this historical event. For example, three discrete sets of annals, mainly concerned with Munster affairs, present their own particular encomium of the O'Briens of Thomond, and they accord the Battle of Clontarf and events surrounding it a central place in their respective narratives. There is also a text referred to in the manuscript sources as Laur Irish Agasanala er Hogavnahedan, which I translate as Book of History and Annals Concerning the Battles of Ireland. Once again, the intent here is to praise the O'Briens of Thomond and the heroic age with which this dynasty is associated. In the interest of time, I will briefly touch on just one of these texts and this is number 11 on your handout, a series of annals which came to be known as the Dublin Annals of Innisfallen, the original of which is preserved just down the road here uh, to us um, in Trinity College Dublin, uh, Trinity College Manuscript 1281. And the main thrust of these annals is the recording of historical events mainly relevant to Munster between the years 250 and 1320 AD. And it was commissioned by Dr. John O'Brien, who between 1748 and 1769 was Roman Catholic Bishop of Cloyne and Ross in County Cork. 
The bishop, of course, was particularly interested in the role played by his eponymous forebears in Irish history. And in light of this, it should come as little surprise to us that the most substantial entries in this set of annals focus on matters relating to the O'Briens of Thomond. The description of events for the year 1014 is the first considerable entry in the Dublin Annals of Innes Fallon. Brian Borva, at this point in the compilation, is depicted as Ireland's gallant sovereign, who, together with his heroic son Morocha, leads the native Irish to victory. As paragons of Christian virtue, father and son are portrayed as foils to the heathen Viking invaders, but the striking feature of the entry for the year 1014 is the shift from a laconic and somewhat lacklustre style of presentation, which characterises the narrative before this point, to one which is animated in tone. Here again, then, we, we find yet another Battle of Clontarf story, which opens with a catalogue of the opposing forces converging to do battle at Clontarf. The narrative swiftly moves on to a duplicitous Moelschachlin of Mies, a motif which, as I mentioned already, derives from Keating's colourful interpretation of the Meath king's role at Clontarf. Bian Borva himself, by contrast, is exalted as a warrior king, and by way of illustration, and this is number 12 on your handout, let's just consider the following passage, which I translate from a section in the entry Sobano 1014. After that, he, that is Brian Borova, revealed to them that the men of Ireland were for a long time under the oppression of the foreign, Viking, uh, Vi foreign Vikings, killing many kings and chief leaders and constantly plundering and burning fortresses and monasteries and churches of God containing saints' relics. And he said in a loud voice, Friends, the Lord granted you powers and strengths today to curb the Viking oppression of the men of Ireland till doomsday and to exact vengeance for those many treacheries and church plunders this day on which Christ himself died on your behalf. And he showed them the crucifix in his left hand and his gold-hilted sword in his right hand, revealing to them that he himself would die together with them, protecting it. After that... Brian and Morocha and the Dalgash host set about attacking the 1,000 armoured men led by the two sons of the king, uh, the king of, of the Norwegians, but Maelschachlin absconded with his meathmen, as he promised the night before, and established a distance of a field between them and the battle. But this did not diminish Brian's courage nor that of Dalgash, for they contested the fight very fiercely. Now, you will agree that Brian Borova, as depicted here, is not only a source of strength for his men, but he is also protector of the crucifix. Rather than adopting the more passive role of an elderly king who opts to remain in prayer apart from the combat, as we find in this passage, we find in this passage a king pitted against foreign oppression and plundering at Clontarf, a king who, above all else, is an active defender of the cross. As far as I am aware, this dramatic depiction of Dian Borova as a warrior king circulating among his troops in the first is the first of its kind to occur in this, the Dublin Annals of Innes Fallon. Of course, the depiction would appear again, as for example in Stand Ye Now for Aaron's Glory, that nationalist ballad by William Keneally, which is a poetic paraphrase, in fact, of this particular passage from the Dublin Annals of Innes Fallon. We also find this depiction in Volume 2 of Sylvester O'Halloran's A General History of Ireland, which was published in 1778, where the reader is told that, quote, Brian or Brian rode through the ranks with a crucifix in one hand and his drawn sword in the other, exhorting his troops to do their duty as soldiers and Christians in the cause of their religion and their country, unquote. The presentation, as we find it in the 18th century Irish compilation known as the Dublin Annals of Innes Fallon, of a valiant Bian Borova brandishing a crucifix in one hand while wielding a sword in the other, would undoubtedly have appealed to his descendant, he who commissioned the work, Bishop John O'Brien of Cloyne and Ross. But it would also have engaged the same reader, whose episcopate was one of vigilance and steadfastness in the defence of the liberties of the Catholic Church in 18th century Ireland. William Keneally, also from Cloyne, cannot have been unaware of that same work commissioned by Dr John O'Brien, while Brian Borova, thus presented in these annals, would also have resonated with Sylvester O'Halloran from Thomond. And, taking all of this together, we can see the one-time historical event at Clontarf has been remoulded into a fictionalised fight 
complete with rhetorical flourishes. To summarise then, the evidence in Irish language sources tells us that the Battle of Clontarf became a literary creation, indeed a recreation, if you will, which was composed by imaginative compilers who formulated their own enhanced interpretation of the Battle of Clontarf uh, in 1014. The result of one such imaginative approach was the main focus of my talk today, the modern Irish prose tale, Cáclónath Harov. As I mentioned in the concluding section, however, this text is but one of a cluster which forms part of a greater story about the Battle of Clontarf in 18th and 19th century Irish manuscripts. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Maybeen. That was Sorry, the technology is, um, is rather letting us down today, and I do apologise to the speaker um, for the lack of connectivity um, during part of the lecture. Um, but I think you'd agree with me that um, Maybeen has done a wonderful um, job, really, in, in demystifying um, the, the layering that, that went on in the transmission of um, the Ka story um, through the literature and um, in, in uh, revealing the various influences which brought to bear on um, the compilations and on their, in, their further interpretation. So I think we're getting many, many layers of, um, of, um, of, of narrative there. Um, but Mavine has kindly agreed to take some uh, questions from the floor. I think we have a questioner from the right-hand side. There. Is there... Is there any evidence that Brian Peru actually won the battle? I think I should preface that by just saying that um, I'm not a historian at all. Um, I'm, my interest is actually in what literature does with historical narrative. Um, so I think I'll leave that to the historians in the audience. As far as I'm aware, uh, no, but... <laughs> And there are others who would be more qualified, I think, to speak on that. I, I think, as I say, it's, it's not. I'm, my point really is not so much that it, this is any less valid. It's a, it's a separate interpretation or remoulding of uh, a historical event. Or, to put it more generally, what actually literature does um, with a topic such as this based on historical fact. And I would encourage you to, to look at the, um, the cabinets on my right here because I certainly the first three I addressed, the material that I addressed, uh, I spoke about today, is incorporated into those. Uh, hi, I'm just wondering about the, the double, Dublin Annals. Uh, did the author see any contradiction between um, praising Brian Brew and the fact that Dublin were technically the bad guys in the story, that they were the they were opposing Brian. Oh, the title, is it? Um, uh, yes. Well, the, 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 it wasn't actually, it doesn't have that title in the original um, work itself in the manuscript. It came to be known uh, as such to distinguish it really from a more renowned set of annals, uh, Annals of Innisfallen, which are housed in, in Oxford. So that actually was a title that was incorporated or given later by later scholars to the work just to distinguish it because the, the actual manuscript ended up coming to, to, to Dublin and to Trinity College. So that's the only reason why it's called the Dublin Annals of Innisfallen. Um, just to say thank you for a very entertaining lecture. Um, I'd just like to ask if you could give a little bit more insight into the, what appears to be the increasing vilification of Mel Shocknell and, and his role um, and, and any contradiction you might see between the, the unity of purpose that you talk about between Irish kings and that betrayal on, on uh, the verge of the battle. Sure. Um, the actual 
motif itself, it, the seed is sown, I'll put it that way, in the Middle Irish text, but it is completely enlarged upon by, by, by Keating himself when we come to the 17th century. And um, my sense from looking at the sources um, is that Munster scribes literally uh, latched onto this. They loved it because it heightened their own sense of I suppose, their own loyalty. We must remember in the, con the context of the times that they were transcribing, um, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, for them it was very important as a kind of a, an identity marker for them. Um, the other thing, of course, is that uh, when you look at English language sources, they too were influenced by Keating. I didn't go into that today, but I do address it in the book. Um, and apart from Charles O'Connor, the 18th century historian, uh, the other historians, one of whom I mentioned, are quite keen to, to uh, alert the reader to this fact and sort of skirt over the issue that this was a parochial king, in fact, who usurped the crown, so to speak, because Moelshachlin, um, being the, the, the king of Ireland, or had taken that title onto himself. So it was very much a discussion among uh, 18th century historians in particular, this idea of, you know, highlighting Melshachlin as the friend turned foe, but at the same time completely dis disregarding the actual historic, the historical fact of what Brian actually had, had done. Um, and as I say, and I, I address that as well, it's, it's very, very pronounced among mon monster scribes, this idea of, uh, you know, this, this northern king who subdued Munster and Brian Borova. Um, but while I do think it's important to, 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 to highlight that, I would also say that it, it shows, it, it, it's evidence for us of scribal interaction with the text, that they're not just slavishly copying, which can often be said about particularly 18th and 19th century manuscripts, that that's all that they were doing. But in fact, I would nearly go so far as to say um, that we have here the seeds of modern Irish literature in the manuscripts, in that these scribes were actually showing that they had a sense of character and that they wanted to portray or produce a work which would be aesthetically satisfact, uh, satisfying as well as, you know, um, as well as satisfying their own parochial, if you like, uh, loyalties and sensibilities.